Our second Bible reading that Gary is going to be speaking to us from is from Acts chapter 2. We're picking it up again from the end of Peter's first sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's been speaking about to this crowd uh, who had been involved in killing Jesus and saying to them that God has raised him from the dead. And I'm going to pick it up from verse 36. Peter says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thanks, Rick. Hello again, everybody. Great if you have your Bibles open at Acts chapter 2. And let's pray as we turn to uh, what God's saying in his word. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for bringing us together this morning and to speaking, us, speaking to us through your word. And we do pray that by the power of your spirit that you would open our eyes and our hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a phrase that we've all heard before. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And it's one of those phrases which is both true and false. It's true uh, because, and here's another saying, uh, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. It's true on that basis. And it's also true because that's not actually how Christianity works. You don't become a Christian and have a renewed relationship with God, have your sins forgiven and are able to look forward to heaven on the basis of the things that you do. Going to church, getting confirmed, getting baptised, all good things, these aren't the things that make you a Christian. And that therefore raises the question, what actually does? What does make you a Christian? And then... Why go to church if it doesn't make you a Christian? And, and they're the questions that we're looking at today. And the answer to these questions are found in our passage here in Acts as we zoom in on the circumstance leading to the very first Christian church. And for those of you who, are like me, haven't been here from the very beginning, especially for those of you online, uh, let me tell you the story so far. So, Book of Acts, what is the Book of Acts? The Book of Acts is the sequel to uh, Luke's gospel, and it's basically what happens next after Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. 
And the book begins with Jesus' last words to his disciples. And he tells them that God would send them the Holy Spirit to empower them to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then when we get to chapter 2, this begins to happen. This promise begins to be fulfilled as the disciples receive the Holy Spirit and begin to witness to a crowd in Jerusalem. And Peter, their spokesman, uh, tells them this, that what they've actually done is conspire with others to send Jesus to the cross, that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. And this is a problem. Why? Because of who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus was no common criminal, no political activist. Verse 36, Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Peter says to the crowd, do you know who you've killed? You've killed the Lord, the Messiah, God's promised king. The one God had sent you to come and save you. And in a way, what Peter is saying is like, you guys are stranded on an island in the middle of the ocean and you've gone and sunk the lifeboat that God's sent to save you. Do you know what you've done? And I wonder if some of those in the crowd there were actually part of the original group who shouted, crucify him, crucify him, when Pontius Pilate tried to release Jesus. Whatever the case, these people had got it wrong about Jesus. And that brings us to verse 37 and our passage for today. And let me... Uh, start by asking you, let's just say you were part of that crowd and you may have been one of those people saying, crucify him, crucify him. How would you respond having realised that you got it totally wrong about Jesus? Uh, it reminds me a bit of a story that happened to a, a couple of friends of mine from my previous church. Uh, they were travelling on train for a holiday in England and on the train there were some young men nearby playing a rowdy game of Uno. And uh, at one point, two of them got up to apologise for the noise they were making, and they asked the couple if they would like a photo. It's a bit of a random thing, and the couple said, sure, uh, here, uh, take, uh, here's my phone, you can take a photo of us. And then the guy goes, no, 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 I'm asking if you would like a photo with me. And at this point, the couple's going, this guy's got tickets on himself, who on the earth does he think he is? But, you know, you're in this situation, you're polite and go, oh, okay. So I have this photo with these two random young men. And then they end up sending the photo back to their son in Australia. And, and when the son sees the photo, he says, do you have any idea who these people are? Uh, these two young men play for Manchester United. And one of them, Paul Pogba, is one of the most famous soccer players in the world. You want to see the photo? Google Paul Pogba, Lewis Patrick. It'll, it'll come up and you'll, you'll see it there. Now, why do I mention this? Not knowing who a soccer player is, isn't really a big deal. I don't think I would have recognised these soccer players either. But it's a totally different situation when it comes to Jesus for two reasons. Firstly, because God had already given them evidence that Jesus was special. Uh, back in verse 32, Peter says that Jesus was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs. Jesus had been doing things and saying things they'd never seen before it should have been obvious that Jesus had come to them from God. But secondly, getting it wrong about a soccer player is kind of embarrassing. But actually, to get it wrong about Jesus 
is to get it wrong about God. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. And what they had done is kill God's son. So how does the crowd respond to the fact they'd got it wrong about Jesus? Come and have a look at what they say in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brother, what shall we do? The crowd is cut to the heart. I and mean, we all know that feeling, don't we, when we've done something wrong or made a big mistake, that that sinking feeling, that 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 shame and that dread that we just can't shake. Uh, that's the feeling the crowd has here at that point. Uh, they are cut to heart and that's why they ask, brother, what shall we do? How do we get ourselves out of this mess that we find ourselves in? And surprisingly, that question is our question as well. Because even though here we are in Richmond, we're miles away from the original event, uh, we're not in Jerusalem, it's thousands of years later, we're just as responsible for the death of Jesus. Because let me ask you, what actually led to Jesus going to the cross? Uh, it wasn't just a miscarriage of justice. It wasn't just the collusion of wicked people that sent him to the cross. Uh, they're both true, but there's actually more going on. And you'll see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says that Jesus was handed over by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. That what happened to Jesus wasn't an accident. In fact, it wasn't an accident. It was what God had to do in order to save people like you and like me from the consequences of our sin. Jesus went to the cross because of our sin. And what is sin and why does Jesus need to do this? Well, sin is not just doing bad things, not just breaking rules. Sin is this whole attitude where we place ourselves before God. It's saying yes to ourselves and no to God. And while that might not sound like a bad thing in itself, when you take back a step back to think about it, well, if God is God, and God is our creator, and he's perfectly good and perfectly just, and to have us as his creations do whatever we want and make ourselves God and pretend he's not there, well, he, he, he can't put up with that, can't he? Can he? It actually makes us his enemies. And it places us under his judgment for what we have done. That's what sin does. It puts us on the wrong side of God and the wrong side of his judgment. And that's why God has to do something to save us. Because here's the amazing thing. What we find in the Bible is despite what we've done, despite our rejection of God, God still loves us and wants to save us from our sin. And the ultimate expression of this love is found in Jesus and what Jesus does for us by going to the cross. So 1 John chapter 4, uh, the Bible says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus has come as an expression of God's love for us, dying on the cross to pay the price for our sin, taking on the judgment we deserved on himself in our place, saving us from judgment, providing atonement, which is another way of saying what Jesus does makes us at one with God. And this is why we're in a similar situation to those in a crowd, why we're just as responsible for the death of Jesus. 
So the question of the crowd, brothers, what shall we do, is not only their question, but our question as well. So what shall we do? Having sinned against God, realising that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. So verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptised, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? Repent and be baptised. And this, at first appearance, seems to contradict what I said at the beginning, that you don't become a Christian through the things that you do. But it's not a contradiction. Uh, let me explain. Firstly, what does it mean when Peter says, repent? What does that mean? Well, the word just means doing a 180. It means you're going this way, now go that way. That's all the word means. And in this particular case, what does it mean for the crowd? Well, what has the crowd just done? The crowd has just condemned Jesus to death. They have sent Jesus to the cross. So that's that direction. So what does going this direction mean? It means no longer rejecting Jesus, no longer looking down on Jesus, no longer think of Jesus as a fraud, but turning around to embrace Jesus for who he is, the one that God has made both Lord and Messiah. It means trusting in Jesus in what he has done. It means living under Jesus as God's promised king. That's what it means to repent. Uh, and when they do that, when they get it right about Jesus, what does Peter say? He says their sins will be forgiven because that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to forgive them their sins by dying on the cross and they'll receive the Holy Spirit in the same way as Peter and the disciples, uh, not only having God now make a home in their lives, constantly transforming them to be more like Jesus, but also empowering them, like Peter and the other disciples, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is what happens when you stop going this way and turn this way towards Jesus. This is what happens when you repent. You become a Christian. And secondly, this is where baptism now comes in. Now, let me make it clear again. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian. It's only trusting in Jesus that actually does that. It's not about the things that we do, but what Jesus has done. So why get baptised? Uh, what's the point of doing that? Well, because repentance and baptism actually go together. Baptism is the way God has given us to publicly declare our repentance. Okay, You can't see repentance. Uh, baptism is an expression of that inner change. And to repent and be baptised are one and the same thing. Uh, it's a bit like some of the phrases we're using uh, commonly, like to pack up and go. That's one thing, isn't it? To kiss and make up, that's one thing. Repent and be baptised. This is one thing that we're talking about. Uh, it's one and the same thing. It means going this way and now heading towards Jesus. And let me ask you at this point, I, I, I don't know many of you here, I haven't been here before, but is that something you've done? Have you stopped going this way, away from Jesus, to turn around to embrace him, to trust in Jesus as Lord? Because if you have, if you've done that, 
Well, that's all you need to do to become a Christian. That's all you need to do to have your sins forgiven and to receive the Holy Spirit. And as I go around talking to people, some people say, well, Gary, that, that sounds too easy. It's too easy. And, and you don't know me. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that I think about. You don't know the mess that my life is in. It can't be that easy. But let me, let me say this to you. Who is Peter talking to at this point? Peter is talking to the crowd that condemned God's son to death. This is the promise he's making to them. So if God can love them and God forgive them, surely that's possible for you as well, isn't it? It's really that easy because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for us because God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. But what has any of this have to do with going to church? And the need to go to church if it doesn't make you a Christian. Well, let's have a look at what happens next. Verse 41. So there's a crowd there. 3,000 of them respond to Peter's message and they repent and get baptised. They become Christians. And then what happens next? Verse 42. These people come together and gather as a church. And in verses 42 to 47, we get a description of the first Christian church. And please notice that between verses 41 and 42, there isn't a long discourse or multiple committee meetings uh, thinking about weighing up the pros and cons of actually starting a church. There's no is this a good idea? Do we, need, uh, do we need to go? Is this the best use of our time? Uh, why do it if we don't have to? There's no deliberation. People become Christian. A church is formed. And what we see here is that the natural consequence of becoming a Christian is to gather together as God's people as a church. And by church, I don't mean building. I don't mean institution. I don't mean denomination. I just mean Christians gathering together in the name of Jesus. And you might say, well, Gary, that's just because they're Jewish. Because that's what Jewish people did. There's a precedent uh, from their culture where they gathered at the temple and their synagogues. But I want to say that it goes beyond that. It goes beyond mere history and culture to the fact that the church, the gathering, lies at the very heart of what God is doing in the world. God has saved us to gather us. Uh, he gathers us because that's how he's going to grow us and sustain us as his people. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says that we grow in maturity as we speak the truth about Jesus to each other in love. It's also uh, how God has brought us together through function. We are brought together to be like a body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, each of us with our own gift to serve one another for the common good. But that's not all. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10, it also says that it's the gathering, the church, that declares the victory of God to the universe and all those who would seek to oppose him. As barriers are broken down and people from different backgrounds and different nationalities are all brought together in the name of Jesus. There's a lot that we can say about what church is for. And I'm sure you're looking forward to hearing Rick speak about that. But here's the thing. 
when we get back to verses 42 to 47, while we can get bogged down with the details of what this first church was like and wonder if our church should be exactly the same, should there be signs and wonders? Uh, should we function more like a commune? Uh, should we sell all that we have and pool all our money together? They're questions worth asking. What's really important is what these verses show us about the relationship between being a Christian and being part of a church. What does it tell us? It tells us that becoming a Christian and being a Christian means living as a Christian in community with others. Living in as a Christian in community with others. In other words, Christian faith, Christian repentance in the Bible is public, not private. We are meant to live out our faith in the context of relationship. Uh, Jesus says this himself in John chapter 13. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How? If you love one another. But you can't love one another if you're not in relationship with others. And that's what we see here in this first Christian church. We see Christian, loving Christian relationships that flow out of a relationship with Jesus. Uh, people, because of their repentance, turning from this way to turn towards Jesus, now devoting themselves to God's word, learning from God's word, devoting themselves to fellowship, this whole idea of partnership, sharing in something common, uh, sharing meals, praying together, helping those in need, meeting regularly, praising God. And the picture you get here is a bit like a family, isn't it? With church not just being something you go to, but something you belong to. Can you see that? And in many ways, this mirrors my own experience. I didn't grow up as a Christian. I became a Christian in my 20s. Uh, and when I met Jesus, I began to change. I still remember talking to a friend from university about uh, me becoming a Christian. And he goes, that's all good, Gary, but I, I, can't, I find it hard to imagine that you'll actually stop swearing. And I thought to myself, yeah, I find it hard to imagine as well. Uh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, one day I just did. I just stopped. And that wasn't the only thing. I mean, I became more helpful at home, uh, more generous, more considerate. It's something my family noticed, even though they were opposed to me being a Christian. And more and more things changed, even though I didn't set out to do them. It all flowed out of having the Holy Spirit in my life and my new relationship with Jesus. And it was the same when it came to my attitude towards church. I started going to church. I started meeting with other Christians at university, not because I had to, but because I wanted to. I wanted to learn. I wanted to meet. I wanted to bring others to church. I wanted to serve. I wanted to be part of what God was doing in the world. All these things happened because my whole perspective had now changed to no longer look inward at myself, but towards Jesus and others. And this is why, while it's true that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, all you need to do is repent and trust in Jesus. It's also false, because if you truly trust in Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll be so changed and transformed that you'll want to go to church to love and serve others 
as part of the body, as part of God's family, to speak the truth in love and help each other grow to be more and more like Jesus, not because you have to, but because you actually want to. Because you've now realised that God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. and We thank you for all that he's done to give up his life on the cross in order to save us. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that you've gathered us together as your people to love one another, to serve each other, to build each other up and express the changes you've made in our lives. We pray, Father, we would never take church for granted and that we would not only go because we have to, but because we would actually want to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.